When I was asked to chair the panel, um, I was very, very pleased. And uh, sitting down to look at <coughs> the members of the panel and thinking about how to, how to chair the meeting, um, made me really think about when we talk about delivering medical innovation, actually there is a, there's a big continuum of uh, what we're funding through from funding the actual discovery of novel medicines through to the delivery of those medicines on a, on a global basis to, or to all populations in the world. And around the table um, or on the sofa, <laughs> we have people that, uh, that spend their lives thinking about how to finance each one of those the different stages in that innovative process. Um, each stage requires financing and each stage, depending on where that financing comes from, the, the money has got different strings attached to it. And I'll just give you an example of, um, example of that from my own uh, experience. Um, I started, uh, my first job was working for a, a company called Cancer Research Campaign Technology which was a, a company that was owned by Cancer Research UK, which was responsible for exploiting uh, intellectual property coming out of cancer research campaigns uh, research. Now, if you think about it, when people put money into a, into a pot to donate to Cancer Research UK um, or uh, leave money in their wills, the reason they're doing that is to finance, enable scientists to actually discover uh, the causes of cancer, try and discover new ways of diagnosing it and, and new ways of treating it. And their expectation um, for, that, for investing that money is, is not financial at all. It's, it's, it is philanthropic and they want to see um, cancer being beaten. So the Cancer Research UK will invest that money in, in research uh, without any expectation of a financial return. However, about 20 years ago, they realized that to achieve their ultimate goal, which is to, 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 to cure cancer on a global basis, you have to involve industry. You have to make the step from a, a, a bench discovery through to translating that to, to commercial reality. And to do that requires upwards of a billion dollars per successful medicine. And therefore, you, you start thinking about patent property, uh, and licensing agreements. So they set up a company called Cancer Research Campaign Technology whose job was to identify those no novel innovations and license to the pharmaceutical industry. Now, they make investments in intellectual property and their concern, what goes to those investments, is that they want to get compounds out into the, into the hands of the drug discovery companies to benefit the cancer patient and hopefully make a commercial return. So they're starting to get on the edge of, well, that money requires a commercial return. And then the next piece in the financing of, of discovery of medicines comes from either venture capitalists or pharmaceutical companies. And certainly the investment capital that's required that they will be investing uh, comes with, we have to make a return on that investment. And it becomes very commercial. So that's what I mean by saying that, that each, each stage requires different, uh, different mechanisms of financing and each and the panel around the table is thinking about how we can use different sources of money to finance each piece of that continuum. So uh, over the past three or four years, we've obviously entered a new economic age. Um, 
and we have to try and find new ways of investing scarce uh, financial resources. So I'm going to ask uh, each panel member um, to describe the organisation they work for and what it does, uh, what each panel member is primarily responsible for, and what financing innovation they're, they're currently uh, excited about. Uh, we will then go to, uh, we'll do that for about half an hour, then we'll, we'll have a, a conversation, a Q&A session amongst the panel, uh, and then we'll open it up to the floor. But I want to emphasise that this is an informal uh, activity, so I will sat on sofas. Um, so if you have any burning questions, I'm sure the panellists will be very happy to answer the questions. So first of all, we have um, the new Andrea, who is Claudio Bertaccioli. That's right. Um, who is with Ascent Biomedical Ventures. And Claudio is a, uh, is a venture capitalist um, and has been thinking about new ways of, of, of financing innovation. Um, I'm over to you. Great. Can you guys hear me? Um, so I've been I'm a molecular <coughs> biologist by training. Um, I've been a venture capitalist for about the last 10 years. Most recently, I was a partner with, with Ascent Biomedical Ventures. Um, I've been working uh, with Andrea Tobias on a, a series of, of investment vehicles that effectively straddle uh, the space, the two spaces that Rob just described. So they're a hybrid of uh, a typical venture capital fund and a philanthropic entity and, and loosely termed venture philanthropy. Um, having spent about 10 years as a venture capitalist, I, 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 I left academia and I went into venture capital because I believed that um, I could be more impactful in a commercial uh, sense than I could be as a pure academic. And having done that for about 10 years, I've come to the conclusion that venture capitalists aren't very good at funding innovation. Um, and so, and, and I say that having taken you know, a number of companies public and sold companies and made money. Um, but when I look back at what we've actually funded, a lot of it is really recycled old drugs or um, inventing novel niche indications that don't actually meet any need. So it speaks much more to complicated and clever marketing games than fundamental technology innovation. And so um, I you know, started to think about uh, you know, other ways in which one can still fund innovation, but doing it perhaps in a slightly more creative way. And I'd like to take a couple of minutes just to explain a little bit how venture capital funds work, because I think it's important to understanding what I think has fundamentally gone, gotten kind of out of whack with venture capital. So venture capitalists basically raise money <clears throat> from investors. So we don't, in, we don't invest our own money. We go out to institutional investors, pension funds. They could be university endowments. And we raise a large pot of capital, typically hundreds of, hundreds of millions of dollars, or at least tens of millions. And we make money two ways. Um, primarily, we retain a piece of the profits that's known as carried interest. So if we raise $100 million, um, the investment partners, the guys who do the deals, put up 1% of the money. This is the typical structure. Um, the institutional investors will put up 99% of the money, but we keep 20% of any return. So it's a hugely skewed upside potential if the picture works out. Um, the other way we make money is we get paid a management fee on the assets under management. So that typically is 2% of the assets. And what has happened with venture capital is over the last, let's say, two decades, the size of the funds has probably gone up about tenfold. And in the course of that, so if you think about a 2% management fee on $100 million, that's $2 million a year, 
you can run an office. There's not a huge amount of slack left in that. 2% on a billion dollars is $20 million a year. And suddenly those numbers start to get so big that the fees effectively outweigh the returns. And so for the, I'd say for the last decade, the entire industry has been chasing fees rather than returns. And, and the incentive structures are fundamentally back to front. And so what ends up happening is if I want to chase fees, I, I raise very large funds, and in order to manage large funds, I want to invest them as quickly as possible, so I do deals that are as large as possible, which effectively pushes me later and later into the product development um, time frame. And we find ourselves really, in the end, funding pivotal clinical trials, and, and in some sense competing with some of the same funding arms that, that pharma would leverage. Um, so stepping back from all of that, uh, so Andrew and I have been basically working on a number of different structures, and I wanted to talk about two in particular. Um, we, we ended up basically setting up a program. Uh, so it was an investment program for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society uh, in the United States, which, which is the leading MS philanthropy in the United States. And what ended up happening was um, this program's called Fast Forward. The Multiple Sclerosis Society put aside a million and a half dollars, and we basically structured a fund uh, to, to, put money, to put money into investments that, that needed to happen but that weren't being otherwise funded by venture capitalists. So this is an organization that typically makes grants. And, and there are certain types of situations where grants really you know, aren't, aren't the right answer and, and you want to make a for-profit investment in areas that, <clears throat> that otherwise often venture capitalists won't invest in. And to cut a very long story short, we ended up uh, striking a deal with, with Merck Serono, uh, where Merck gave Fast Forward $19 million, pretty much free and clear. Um, and, and in exchange, the Fast Forward program would go out and issue a series of RFPs, so requests for proposals, for funding from companies that were working in areas of interest to Merck Serono. And in return for giving the $19 million, Serona has a right of first negotiation or anything that comes out of it. If they don't pick up the asset, it reverts back to the Multiple Sclerosis Society. So it's an early stage program. I mean, they've made three investments to date. But it, you know, it begins to, 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 point a picture, uh, to paint a picture of something that looks a bit like venture, but the money's coming from a slightly different source, and the return profile isn't necessarily purely financial, right? There's sort of a strategic component to it. Um, the second example, oh, and, and the other thing I would say is, because these are philanthropic structures, there are lots of complications around the donors uh, retaining tax-advantaged status, uh, which means that there are, there, are, there are questions. It ends up being complicated legally to set them up, but also typically we end up investing in things like warrants and royalties rather than, than straight equity. So these structures can be pretty complicated. Um, the second one, which has also been set up successfully, uh, is a program actually that I, I wasn't directly involved in, but I have some familiarity with, um, which is, which is uh, Brandon Capital. And so Brandon is an interesting uh, venture capital firm in Australia that in a lot of ways looks like a technology transfer office consortium is, is the best way I could describe it. So there are about 30 leading uh, life sciences institutions in Australia, and together they set up this fund. And so this fund is, is essentially captive to these institutions. Each institution kicks in a small management fee. Uh, it's on the order of about $30,000 a year. So between 30 institutions, you essentially get the management fee to pay 
the investors to do that job. And then the investment capital comes from conventional investors. Um, and again, you know, they're, they're, they're a bunch of complicated structures and they end, they end up investing in royalties sometimes and things like that. But um, again, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting way of thinking about there are essentially these two sets of money, and they don't need to come from the same person. Um, you know, we're, we're, another thing that we've been setting up recently, uh, actually uh, both with Oxford and, and the George, it, it's being structured right now. I'm not sure if it's going to ever get off the ground, but it's, a, it's essentially a social enterprise fund that, that, that leverages some of these concepts. Um, and in particular, the, the funding comes from different tiers of investors. So as opposed to going only to conventional, you know, institutional investors who want a very, very high return, we're going to end up raising money uh, from things like development banks. So, so private good funders will put up a chunk of the money and will have essentially a lower return expectation than the typical investor. And so you end up with these sort of hybrids where some of the money comes in from institutional investors and some of the money will come in from people who have return expectations that aren't as high but are focused on, 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 social, on social good and, and see leverage from the other investors. Thanks very much. Right. Uh, next speaker is Sheila, Sheila Wilson, who's uh, head of European Centre of Excellence for Drug Discovery at uh, Glaxo, and they've, they've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to innovate around drug discovery. Thanks, Rob, and good morning, everyone. Um, there was actually one word that you... Critical word that you missed out of my, my title there. It was it's, I'm, I'm head of the European Centre of Excellence for External Drug Discovery. So sorry, sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful. The key word is the word external. We were actually set up um, five years ago, a very small team within GlaxoSmithKline, to externalise a portion of uh, GSK's drug discovery. The externalise a portion of the R&D. And we do this by setting up drug discovery alliances with biotech companies. And the, the ultimate aim of these alliances is to bring molecules with clinical proof of concept back into GSK where, where we will then put them into full development. So the sorts of biotechs that we're looking for are biotechs with some form of innovative platform technology, ideally a technology that's applicable across multiple targets, multiple disease areas. But also we're looking for companies where the technology is perhaps slightly riskier than we would contemplate setting up internally within, within a big pharma organization. Now, a typical alliance that we would set up would involve three or four programs. The biotech company would prosecute those three or four drug discovery programs all the way through to clinical proof of concept. And at this stage, we would then have an option to in-license that molecule, that program at, at that stage. So an important aspect of these alliances is that the biotech partner retains ownership, retains control of the programs. They retain their independence to prosecute those programs as they see fit, and GSK simply has an option to in-license at a predetermined price at the, uh, at the option point, at the clinical proof-of-concept phase 2A stage. So it's actually quite important for us that the partner retains control, retains their independence. We want to leverage the speed, the expertise, the entrepreneurial approach of the biotech throughout this early stage of, of drug discovery. And this is actually a very important aspect of, of these alliances to us. And we're, we're very comfortable standing back and having a fairly light touch in terms of managing these alliances. So, so these are not standard collaborations. 
Another important aspect of these collaborations is that they are risk-sharing. The, the, the philosophy around them is risk-sharing. We don't provide research funding. What we do provide is uh, an upfront payment. The size of that upfront front payment will reflect the value of the technology and the assets that the, the company is bringing to the alliance. Thereafter, the, uh, the payment is in, in terms of success-based milestones. So again, pre-agreed, we will have a fixed number of milestones. We'll have criteria, pre-agreed criteria for those milestones. If the biotech, that particular program within the alliance meets those criteria, they will, they will get the, um, the, the milestone payment. And then obviously there's an, there's an option fee, an option payment, when we eventually in-license the molecule. Subsequently after that, as we put the molecules into full development, there will then be further milestone payments and ultimately royalties if the drug actually makes it to the market back to the, the biotech partner. So very much success-based risk-sharing but also reward-sharing collaborations with the biotech sector is, is the focus of my particular group. So happy to talk about this a little bit further, but just alluding to what Claudia was saying uh, earlier, I think one of the challenges for us is that because we're investing in very early stage innovative drug discovery, the VC firms, because it's, because it's risky, the VC, VC firms now, the, the investors in those private biotechs are starting to pull out because they're not getting their return on, on their investment. And this is going to be a challenge for us going forward. How do, we, how do we make sure there are sufficient biotechs, there are sufficient ideas being spun out and created into private companies that we can continue to have these sorts of alliances with? And how do we structure those deals to ensure that the VCs do get a, a, a decent return on, on their investment? So that's certainly one of the challenges that's, that's, that's facing us in, in Big Pharma. A couple of other areas, actually, that um, we, we started talking about before the panel. Um, one of the other challenges for us, I think, is also how do we, how, certainly within GSK, how do we evolve this model to incorporate academia? So all of the alliances that we set up are with, at the moment, are with biotech companies, both private and public companies. Clearly, there are... There's tremendous innovation, tremendous new ideas, science going on in, in academia related to drug discovery, directly related to drug discovery and, and research for new medicines. So, so how do we evolve our model and how do we evolve the financials and, the, and, and the, the, the deal structures to be able to set up alliances with academic groups, with research institutes with, um, or with academic labs? And how do we partner with the investment community with VC firms, with investment banks, to enable us to fund that innovation, fund that drug discovery within academia without necessarily requiring that those, those ideas spin out into a, into, a, into a biotech company. So that's a second challenge that, that we have. And then a third challenge I just, I'd like to mention just very briefly relates to a, a very recent structural uh, strategic change that we've had within, within GSK. About a month ago, we announced the creation of a rare diseases unit within GSK. It's a unit which is focused on the development and commercialization of drugs for orphan diseases, rare diseases, where clearly there isn't a huge market. So the challenge for us is to try and find some sort of financial model that will make sure that that unit is commercially viable. We are a public company. We have a, um, a, a duty to our shareholders, but nevertheless gives us sufficient return that we can plow some of that money back into drug discovery for rare diseases, which clearly has always been very challenging because of the nature of the, the small market size. So I guess three areas of excitement, but certainly challenge um, for, for financing innovation going forward from, from our perspective. Thanks very much, Sheila.
I didn't introduce myself, but I work for a, a VC company called DFJ Esprit. Um, <clears throat> we're focused on investing in, in technology across the board. Um, uh, my own role is in investing in biotech. But just to, just to sort of emphasize the, the points that have been made over here, um, we haven't done an investment in a, in a therapeutic company for five years. And, and the reason we haven't done that is because it's incredibly difficult to actually make any money out of that. And in the discussion session, we can probably maybe, if it's a topic which you're interested in, we can pick up on that. But the other, the other point, just to emphasize in terms of um, the way that um, VCs, sort of evolving is probably the wrong word, regressing in terms of investing in, in therapeutics. I joined uh, VC in, in 2000. Uh, the firm's based in Cambridge, and then there were five or six companies uh, in the, just in the Cambridge area that were investing in drug discovery projects, and now there are none. Uh, so that, you know, that, that gives you a, a flavor for the difficulties that, uh, that, that we face in terms of investing in medicine that, that, that people like Glaxo can pick up. Okay, so we've, we've talked a little bit here about um, actually discovering medicines, and on the, the, the left-hand sofa, uh, I think we're going we, to move much further downstream in terms of you know, how, how do those medicines get, uh, get to the market uh, and get used on a global basis. Um, so Saul uh, Walker is with the Policy and Research Division of the UK Department of International Development. Um, so yes, I'm Saul Walker, I'm at DFID, um, and I lead DFID's work on access to medicines in our policy division, uh, which actually goes right along the value chain that, that Rob talked about earlier on. DFID does make some investments in innovation for um, products that have primarily a developing country market, and in, well, I say market, that we're primarily interested in getting products that will support the poor. And obviously one of the key things there is, is lack of ability to pay and, and the challenge of creating a, a market rather than just a, a need uh, for those products. So we, I'll come back to the innovation bit in a moment. We also walk, work on the international policy environment around medicines, uh, and that includes things like um, international trade agreements, the, the TRIPS agreement, which governs issues around um, intellectual property and, and, and new medicines, which has been a big issue over recent years, and, and the trade-off between an IP system that supports uh, the development of medicines and the reinvestment uh, in, in new products. And on the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, does that by... Uh, generally providing a high price for those medicines, which then makes access to those medicines difficult for poorer countries. So we, we try to work in that space about managing those trade-offs more effectively for developing countries. We also work internationally around issues like regulation uh, of medicines, around work with the roles of the international pharmaceutical uh, industry and how they work um, to improve access to medicines in developing countries, as well as focusing on developed countries. And lastly, we move downstream a little bit, really, into um, strengthening health systems in developing countries to ensure that medicines actually get delivered once you have them. Uh, and that includes looking at the financial uh, resources available to countries to purchase and deliver medicines. It looks at trying to improve the, the basic components of the health systems that you need, staff, um, fair financing, infrastructure, supply chains, and so forth. So we work along quite a broad uh, value chain, and, and one of the things that we try to do, and 
I try to do is make sure that the way that DFID works at different parts of that value chain are, are reasonably well aligned, so we're not pulling in different directions internally, but also as, a, as one donor amongst many donors in an international um, development environment that we try to align as well as we can with, well, firstly, the needs of poor people in developing countries so that we're doing something that actually benefits uh, those people. And then secondly, with other donors, other international organizations, other stakeholders uh, in the environment that we work in, because although DFID does have significant resources, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean, really, with what's required in total. So we need to leverage that. We need to work in, in, in uh, harmony with others. And that obviously gets political and gets very difficult at times. Um, coming back to the innovation side, uh, it's relatively recent that funders like DFID, which largely delivers, when we talk about medicines, it's about funding medicines that already exist. Um, it's only in recent years, probably about the last 10 years, that DFID has really dipped its toe into the waters of trying to develop new medicines um, or, or fund the adaptation of medicines for use in developing country settings. And we've prim primarily done that well, through a number of different mechanisms. Firstly, we put in probably annually about £60 million a year into direct funding for the development of, of new products. And that tends to be at the translational stage, so from um, preclinical into clinical, um, through external partnerships. It's not something that we do in-house. We work through a number of, of, of partnerships called product development partnerships, and I'm sure they'll come up later in the discussion, so we can come back to that. But that's direct financing, so we take a risk, we try and work out where best to put the money and, and, and hopefully something pops out the other end. Um, we've also more recently tried to look at how to demonstrate a viable market in developing countries for new products, which is obviously one of the reasons why we don't see any innovation or haven't seen innovation for those countries, because the market isn't there. So we've done that in several ways, partly by putting money into and increasing the availability of money for funding health in developing countries for existing products. So showing that you, once you have a product, you can actually get it to people and there is a market. And that's through big financing mechanisms like the Global Funds, Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria, or the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, which, which fund uh, health programs in developing countries. More recently still, we've actually also put money into trying to be more specific about a particular product innovation that we want to see and we think would help have major health benefit and set up what we've called a mar uh, an advanced market commitment um, for a pneumococcal vaccine. There were several late-stage products uh, in uh, development with commercial companies. Um, the usual uh, life cycle for those vaccines would be they would be launched in the north um, and, and bring health benefits in the north, and maybe some many years down the line would be rolled out in the south um, once investments had been recouped uh, centrally. We've tried to put money up, work with other donors to put money up front uh, ahead of the introduction of these products to say to, to uh, commercial companies there is a market um, in developing countries. And actually the, the total market that we've tried to get to there is $1.5 billion. Um, 
So we've made various commitments around guaranteeing a certain price for those products during an initial uh, phase and then a long-term price um, in, in once though that initial market value of $1.5 billion has been achieved. And that long-term price is much lower as intended to provide sustainability for countries accessing the vaccine. But it's the first time we've really kind of tried to flag in a much more specific way uh, a particular market for a particular product. And actually, Adrian may talk a little bit about that later. He's been very involved in some of the analysis for that. So that's a new mechanism. Um, <clears throat> very briefly, you know, it's a number of people have mentioned the, the changing economic circumstances. As a donor, we have moved into this space. Others have followed us, the Dutch, the Irish, the Spanish, and others. A number of them are beginning to step back a little bit now in terms of investing in this space. So there's a big question now about having moved into this, can international development agencies like DFID, how do we sustain interest in this area? How do we either raise new money through, through new channels of investment? How do we better allocate the money that we have and, make it, and leverage it more effectively or allocate it more effectively? Or how can we work through the other mechanisms and areas that we work in, uh, in the international policy environment or downstream, um, to improve the efficiency or reduce the costs of developing new products? So those are the kind of policy areas we're trying to look at at the moment. And as I said, you know, at the same time, trying to make sure that we're aligned within our own policies and across the UK government's policies, but also trying to bring other donors uh, and developing countries and other institutions with us. So those are the, the, the challenges that we're grappling with at the moment, really. Okay. Thanks very much, Saul. Next, we have uh, Professor Adrian Toos, who's the Director of the Office of Health Economics. Okay, thank you, Rob. So um, the OHE is a research and consulting group that is owned by the UK Pharmaceutical Industry Association, but we operate at arm's length from them, and we do a, a variety of, of pieces of research and consulting for, for different groups. I mean, my own, I'll just come on to a couple of examples, but my own background is I spent, um, I've been there now a long time, 16, 17 years. Um, before that, I spent 10 years in management consultancy during the time of the Thatcher privatization program, so I did a lot of work on the regulatory economics around privatizing and regulating utilities of various forms. And I think some of the issues that one thinks about public intervention in the R&D process in pharmaceuticals have some, I mean, one has to be careful, analogies with, um, with those sorts of issues. Um, the sorts of work we've been doing, we've done work for um, the Rockefeller Foundation on what I think is, a, is an important issue which, which will increasingly come up um, as, as funds get tighter over the next few years, which is if, and I'm sure it's an issue for DFID and other, other public bodies, we've got Gates that has a commitment to funding R&D. The other key investors in this area have a lot of commitments, including buying existing, existing treatments. So to what extent should they put, does it make sense for them to put money into R&D as opposed to into buying, enabling more to be bought of what we already have? So what are the, what are the trade-offs there and the issues around there? We've done work for, for DFID, in fact, a small piece of work, but more work for the Gates Foundation on how do we combine the sort of pull incentive, the advanced market commitment that, that Saul talked about, where DFID has been one of the, one of, one of the leaders in getting that, that off the ground, with the sort of pull, the product development partnership. So if, if we're putting money into the R&D, and we're also putting money into rewarding success, how do, we, how do we make sure those things join up in a constructive way, and, and essentially the international community don't end up paying twice, or indeed something falls through the gap in, in the middle? So how, how, might, how might one use those? 
and as I saw mentioned, we're currently advising um, Garvey on how <clears throat> what's called technically the counterfactual, but if one's trying to understand whether the advanced market commitment for pneumococcal vaccine is a success, what are you comparing it to? What would have happened in this disease area without the advanced market commitment? So how can one set a benchmark for what the rollout of that vaccine might have been in, in, in a different um, environment? Um, the third area I just wanted to mention very quickly, because I want to come pick that up, is this whole question of differential pricing, where we've, I've published a lot of work with Patricia Danson, who's an academic at the, um, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. But we've also done work for um, a couple of, of multinational companies looking at the reality of how can one, within a market, not across markets, but within a market, um, charge different prices to different, um, different groups. So I wanted to pick up sort of two, two issues that sort of build on on work that we've done in, 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 in sort of policy advice and in, in this area. The first is this, this question of differential pricing. So it seems to me one important area, particularly as companies like GSK, but others as well are saying, emerging markets are, are a key area of growth for them. So if we, if we take those emerging markets that don't have, at the moment, advanced Western-style third-party payer healthcare systems, so for a variety of reasons, those, those don't exist. They may exist in, in five or ten years, and in one or two countries, there's, there's reform taking place um, at the moment. So then you've got, essentially, for the sake of argument, two or three key different income levels. You've got um, people who, in the absence of any, any, any publicly funded system, will, will get very poor access to medicine, certainly at, at any prices that, that involve a premium for um, for returns on R&D. But you've got very strong emerging middle classes who can actually afford to pay um, in some cases towards prices that will reward um, in, in part the cost of innovation. So I think one issue is to what extent in markets like India, China, others in, in Asia, it will be realistic and possible and indeed it should be something that governments are encouraging to have different prices for the same product and it may well be that in, um, the, the lower price market is being served by, by the, the, the R&D based company licensing it to a local generic manufacturer. But the point is that there's a, there's a structured um, tier within the market. So to what extent can that generate money? And I'll just mention one other initiative in this area, which I know um, at least one vaccine company has looked at, which is a possibility of using microfinancing to actually lend families money to get their kids vaccinated against key, um, key diseases. Because in effect, what, what that family is doing is investing in the, in the future productivity and prosperity of their household. And, and, and the issue is, could they be given a start, as it were, to enable that, that to happen? The second area I wanted to touch on is, is this question of if we have international money through foundations like, like the Gates Foundation, through governments like, um, like the UK and DFID, you know, what is the most efficient way of, of channeling that and how can that leverage off the private sector in, in some way? And I certainly think that the, the advanced market commitment of essentially rewarding, offering a guaranteed price premium um, to companies that achieve a product that meets the, the international requirements for tackling, in, in the current case, pneumococcal disease, but, but one can imagine similar um, hurdles for, um, for, for other um, diseases, a, a malaria vaccine, for, um, for example. Um, that's, those seem to me to be, I mean, it's early stages yet, but in principle, um, potentially highly um, effective ways of, of, of managing or creating incentives in, in, in a manageable way. I think it's worth mentioning one or two others that are possible that get us into the more general issue of where should the money come from. And that is the, um, 
a priority review voucher that's now legislation in the US, which effectively means that if a company brings a, pr a product, uh, obtains a license for a neglected disease from the FDA, they can then prioritize the FDA looking at a product for the, for the US marketplace. So the rewards the company gets are from the US marketplace, not from the, um, not from the um, um, emerging and, and, um, and poor countries. So, of course, what's happening there effectively is the healthcare, there's a cross-subsidy from the, from the U.S. healthcare system to, um, um, to R&D. So one can argue that that's um, potentially a model that one could think about in Europe, but <clears throat> what you will get from finance departments in governments around the world is saying, well, hang on, if there's a cross-subsidy, why should it be from health? Should we be taxing airline use, or you know, what's the most efficient way if we want to raise a pot of money to invest in this way? So you get into an interesting area of debate, I think, there. The other thing I wanted to, to, to mention is that very quickly is, is on the pool side where we've, we've seen the, the, the product development partnerships uh, being um, e extremely successful in putting together portfolios of pipelines where they simply didn't exist in, in key diseases, key neglected diseases a few years ago. And I think, that for me, going back to the earlier comments around the table, I see those very much as, as, as what, in principle, they should be as social venture capital funds, um, that they are essentially taking money and investing, um, taking punts on getting investment, the returns of which will be, which will be uh, valued in terms of health gain um, in poorer countries. And the question is, how do they, how do they efficiently manage those processes? And, and it seems to me the way that they do it, and getting in, they're getting increasingly sophisticated doing it is partnerships with companies like GSK um, and others where there are milestone payments, all the ways in which venture capitalists think about making sure that there is an incentive to progress and the rewards are linked to progress seem to me to be um, the, um, the, the way forward. And I'm sure that there's already been a lot of innovation in that, in that area and I'm sure there's, um, there's more to come in, um, in, in the future. I'll stop there. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, last, last but not least is, is Javier Guzman. Yeah. Yeah, uh, who's Director of Research at the George Institute for International Health. Thank you. Um, yes, well, um, I'm the Director of Research um, at the Health Policy Division. Um, basically, what we do is um, we try to provide comprehensive and accurate information so that governments like DFID or policymakers can make informed decisions. Um, and, we, um, and also, well, make informed decisions and allocate their funds more effectively. Um, our area specifically is research and development and pharmaceutical policy. So it's, it's very interesting because we do have a lot of work, and that's basically because there's a totally new landscape um, in terms of research and development for these diseases that disproportionately affect the developing world. Um, and there's a new landscape because of many reasons that, well, some of them have been already um, discussed and mentioned, like, well, DFID getting into the R&D space, the Gates Foundation getting into this space. But all to say that these diseases are extremely interesting and the products for these diseases are extremely interesting simply because the IP system doesn't work at all. And therefore, people need to be innovative about how to address this market failure. So we've been doing work um, all along the research and development um, pipeline in terms of how to incentivize this uh, particular research and development for neglected diseases. Where is the money coming from? Who's funding this? What business models um, are now out there? And we hear about the product development partnerships. Um, and it's, when, when you see um, 
there is just so much out there that someone needs to do some analysis and due diligence to really prioritize those mechanisms that are going to be, well, have the potential to be successful. And one of the um, projects we did was um, a project for the expert working group hosted uh, by the World Health Organization. And it was a comparative analysis of the proposals out there. And we found at, at about 90 proposals of how to actually finance this research and development for uh, neglected diseases. And, and then the question is, well, and, and you've heard a lot of these terms about what's the right combination about push, about subsidizing the inputs uh, against pool, against actually trying to recreate the market. And a lot of the decisions have been made have, have been made with evidence sometimes, but without evidence in many occasions. So just to pick up the example that Adrian just mentioned, the PRV, the Priority Review Voucher example, that came from a, an academic in the U.S. who was very well connected with a senator who wanted to actually make policy. And it passed Congress very quickly and now is implemented. Um, whether that's good or bad, well, we, we don't know, but it would be, it's, we believe that it's really important to actually have evidence to really make decisions, and that's what we do. Um, so it, just, to, just to come up on, on a few points, I mean, going back to these um, different business models, uh, we do have the product development partnerships, and uh, it's important to say that um, some of this innovation that is taking place in the neglected disease field can be clearly extrapolated to some commercial areas. In some of, I mean, in some, there are some benefits in that. But specifically, the, these um, new business models where um, a not-for-profit institution gets money from philanthropists and get money, gets money from eight budgets, which is basically different and Dutch, but pretty much eight. And then they actually do... Um, all the virtual research and development by allocating the funds according to, um, well, public health was the most, um, uh, I mean, was the best um, decision from a public health perspective and partnered with the different sectors, with the public sector, with the big, big, big companies, big pharmaceutical companies, small biotechs, and try to actually um, make them work in their area of comparative advantage. And that's a clearly shift from what we had in the past where um, there was a clearly distinction in this field about what the public sector does and what the pharmaceutical companies do, and there was not really in between. So that's really interesting. But the question now is how to maintain the momentum. That is really the question. Because before we had the problem of, well, nothing is happening in research and development, and some figures were like, you know, 13 products out of the 1,500 registered in 25 years were for these neglected tropical diseases. That was the problem before, no activity. The problem, the problem now is a lot of activity and how to prioritize the funds. So now clearly, for instance, the PDPs manage a portfolio of about 150 candidates for all these diseases, drugs, vaccines, vector, technology, uh, vector control uh, technologies, and who's going to fund the late stage? Who's going to fund the phase three trials for the new TB vaccine? Who's going to fund, um, well, the new TB drug that, where we know that, well, these, these trials are about, you know, thousands of people? And just to give you an example, another piece of work that we do is called the Global Funding of Innovation for Neglected Diseases, GFinder, and we track resources, and we found that these PDPs are mainly funded by Gates. 
60% of that money, of, or 60% of the PDP funding comes from Gates. And we believe that Gates is going to be in the game for a long time, but what if Gates dies? Um, and also, well, we know that the financial crisis is having an impact on the public funding. So, well, Saul said DFID was the first um, government to, to come into this space. But now we clearly see the impact of the financial crisis on the public funding. And from, from 2007 to 2008, there was a reduction of about $25 million in funding. And we know that this coming year, when we track the resources, the impact of the financial crisis is going to be big because whenever there's financial crisis, the first thing to cut is aid budgets. And this is all about aid budgets. So I will leave it to that, and then we can discuss more of some of these issues. Floor. Um, hopefully, we can we can pick up some of the threads that that, that, that we've discussed. So, could you um, state your name and where you're from, please? Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Nigel Sanson from the NHS National Innovation Centre. I guess the, uh, the the question is really aimed at the VC guys. Um, my group is um, involved in identifying raw ideas and trying to uh, help develop them up into market-ready concepts so we don't go to the um, market proper or the CE marking stage. Um, what we do do is we put small amounts of money into things. Um, and we shift, I guess, so £40,000 here, £100,000 there and so. So what we don't do is to value um, technologies properly. We you know, try to find things that might have um, uh, potential healthcare benefits, um, cost savings and the like. But um, have you ever seen Dragon's Den in the yeah. UK? Yeah? And typically um, people with bright ideas come in front of these guys and uh, after a while they've pitched their idea and the dragons will say, um, how do you value your business? And they usually say uh, some imaginary number times by another imaginary number, and then they say, that's ridiculous, get out. How do you, with a, in the healthcare space, I know it's a hard um, area to be involved in for a, a VC, how do you uh, go about valuing things? The same. The same? <laughs> <laughs> well, as an investor, the, the answer is always as low as possible. And as a seller, it's always as high as possible, and in the end, it's what the market will be. So it depends heavily on how much competition there is for the specific investment on either end of that equation. Okay. okay. I mean, it's a very interesting question. I mean, clearly, from our perspective, the way we value an alliance or a biotech is purely on the basis of what, what, what sales, what revenue would we eventually get out of a, of a product that comes out of it, a medicine that comes out of it. And that tends to be how the investment community values uh, biotech, so it's, it's based generally on the, the, the commercial value of their lead asset. So that's how the company's valued, but, but often the, the reason that a company is acquired or bought by Big Pharma, for example, is on the basis of their platform technology. It's not on the basis of the lead asset. So there's a dichotomy here that the, the monetary value is on the basis of a single asset, but actually the, the the, the more intangible value is on the basis of the platform technology, which is much more difficult to put a number on. So you've, you have hit on a, on, on a challenge there. How do, we, how do we value platform technology? I think, was, that, was that your question? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I think um, I'm intrigued by your model, GSK. Um, that there's a, a lady called Judy Lewent at Merck. I'm, I'm ex-farmer as well. 
uh, Novartis. Uh, Judy Lewent uh, is a, the tra trailblazer of real options in pharmaceuticals. And I know her difficulty was getting the senior management to buy it because it's you know, hyper-mathematical stuff and it involves the, the black skulls modified equation and all that stuff that these private equity guys will know all about. And do you follow that sort of mechanism of real options to, to get we, to your option value? We don't get, go into that level of detail. I mean, essentially what we do is what everybody does is, is try to calculate an NPV for each particular yeah. program, each particular asset. So there's obviously lots of projections and assumptions um, based that, go, that, goes, that goes into that, but um, it's a, we use a fairly standard financial projection Very straightforward model. straightforward. Yeah. Okay. I, I just had um, my, my point of view on that. The, so in terms of valuation, I mean, part of that is driven by how much investment is required to, to get, the, get the product or the company to the point where you can exit. So, you know, if, you, if the company requires a you know, million pounds to get to the point where it could be sold, you know, for a VC um, uh, to, you know, to make sort of five or ten times their money, which is what VCs say, um, you know, you've got to you've got to look at that and say, well, a million pounds. If we did, uh, let's, let's say, the business was worth one million, you buy fifty percent of the business, sell it for ten, you got five million back at the end of the, the end of that process. So there is. Part of the part of thinking about how much can we pay uh, at the early, very early stages in the life of the company is driven by you know, how much capital will be required, and therefore how big does the exit need to be? The bigger, the more capital you raise, the bigger the exit needs to be for everybody in that food chain to make money. And that's part of the challenge. Hi, uh, I'm Sumit Bakshi. Uh, in my former life, I used to be uh, a strategic planner for Pfizer in India. And uh, uh, I'm currently working with an, uh, interning with an investment company here. Uh, my question is, is uh, on, on the policy aspect of, and, and prioritization of funding. Uh, we, we've heard in, in the panel that, uh, you know, there, there is a problem for uh, the neglected diseases, the drug discovery for neg neglected diseases. And a lot of funding is, is being directed towards drug, pro drug discovery programs and drug development programs uh, you know, for the developing world. Uh, the, the reality in the developing world is that about, you know, de depending on country, uh, about 50 to 60 percent of population or probably more uh, does not have access to, to see a doctor. Uh, so um, in, in, in terms of commercializing these technologies or commercializing these drug discovery programs or, or, or uh, 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 the drug development programs, there is a challenge because still we are reaching a very small section of population. So you know, from a policy perspective uh, and from a funding perspective, uh, you know, where do you see uh, the, the uh, do you see any investment going into Development of healthcare infrastructure within within those companies, in, in improving uh, healthcare access within these countries, and thereby you know, actually making a platform for commercializing these these programs later on. Thank you. One of you gentlemen can leave that. Should I dive in? Um, yeah. Certainly, yes. One of the things that Diffid tries to build into our work across across that kind of value chain is is 
supporting a viable market in developing countries, and that means investing in health systems. It means making sure that there is additional financing to domestic financing to support the purchase of, of, of products uh, or to access health care. <coughs> Last year, DFID spent about a billion pounds on health in total in developing countries. About 30% of that, a bit more, um, was on health system strengthening to try and strengthen um, you know, the, the delivery systems to reach people. Um, we're also now turning our attention a little bit, not just to the external financing that goes into countries, but how do you better organise and work with governments to put in place domestic financing health systems. In a lot of countries, despite there being a lot of poverty, there is a lot of private money going into healthcare. It's often very inequitable. It's often drives people into poverty. Um, are there ways that we can work with governments to have more socialised, um, better risk-sharing type financing systems in countries? So we're, we're beginning to work on that, and particularly in countries like India, where there are resources in certain you know, sections of the population. There's a vast number of poor people, but are there ways to access some of that domestic resource as well as putting just external resources in? So we are trying to grapple with that. Um, I think the other side of that is can you reduce the costs of development? Um, and again, I think, are there ways of working in emerging markets with companies that have lower cost bases in developing new products? Actually, a number of the big pharmaceutical companies are already beginning to have uh, partnerships with Indian companies or Chinese companies to try and do that. The product development partnerships that keep getting mentioned, for example, Medicines for Malaria Venture that invests in malaria medicines has a number of uh, uh, partnerships in China to develop new products, for example. So we're trying to look at a variety of different models to address both the demand side um, in terms of a viable market and the supply side in terms of reducing costs or working innovatively with different stakeholders. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a developing science, I think, would be the, the answer. I've just, just had a couple of quick things. Anything you add that, Ed, when you're looking at this, anything that's not going through the existing, um, for example, vaccination programs that you can just add on, that at that point things get, it, get more difficult. But... I mean, I'll give the example of, I can't remember what exactly it's, it's been called in the end, but the, um, there's a malaria fund has been set up um, as a result of a, um, a report from the Institute of Medicine in the US uh, now a few years ago, which is essentially aimed at subsidizing um, the prices of malaria drugs in, in pharmacies on the assumption that in, in most countries, poor people are going to go to their pharmacy to get their antimalarials. And, and the issue is around developing, uh, selling combination products at the same price as single ones so you'd slow down the development of resistance. So, but but there, there are innovative ways that one can still think about. The, the reality is that people are spending their own resources on, on medicines and can we make sure that they're buying better ones and that, 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 that they're getting support in some way. Uh, yes, um, I think it's really important to highlight how the field is changing and is trying to adapt a bit later than what it should have happened, but it is adapting. And one example, just following on the Medicines for Malaria Venture, one of the PDPs, one of the product development partnerships, where they, when they were set up, they were set up with the aim to discover and develop new antimalarials. And everyone agreed that that was the mission. Then in 2006, they added one D to the mission. 
discover, develop, and deliver antimalarials because it's clearly well recognized that the, the work is not done um, with the registration of the product. And there is a term that, well, Chris uses a lot, which is innovation pile-up, which is we've got a lot of technologies, but, well, the question of how to roll them out is as important as having the technologies. Um, for, um, echoing what Adrian said, the private sector is key. Um, and even though, well, really, it's really important to strengthen the, the health infrastructure, the public health infrastructure in these countries, we know that the private sector is as important or more important. So, and, and a lot of the new um, ideas is focusing on the, on the private sector. Um, and finally, well, one key issue for, for delivery is price. And, and, and we know that, well, that there are a lot of uh, elements into access, but price is a key element. And with that, we have a lot of interesting ideas like, well, the partnerships with the pharmaceutical companies at the, with the not-profit, not not-loss model, um, licensing agreements, and, and, well, target product profiles when clearly as part of the go-no-go criteria, you say, well, is that going to cost more than a dollar for a new antimalarial? And if it does, well, you, you just don't progress it farther. Thank you very much. I've learned a great deal um, today, and I just wanted to ask a few questions um, targeting um, Sheila and Rob. Um, Rob, you mentioned about the move away from therapeutics um, in terms of your investment company, and I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that, the fact that you haven't invested in anything therapeutic for five years, yeah. and I wondered whether that's, there's a similar landscape in the U.S., um, yeah. or whether it's a European... Okay. Problem And also, I wondered, Sheila, if you could talk about the pharmaceutical move away from R&D. And um, is it a case of investing in cutting-edge R&D beyond the company because you don't want it to affect your share price? And that's why you don't, being facetious there, <laughs> want to invest within the company. And also, I wanted to ask the um, public sector investors... Um, about resource-rich economies. You have developing countries which have a huge amount of resources, oil, diamonds, and so on and so forth. And is, a, is there a way to work with them to ensure that they target the revenues from these industries into investing in healthcare? Okay, three questions there. So if you guys can keep your I think the... The issue of VCs not investing in therapeutics is, uh, is, is pretty common across the globe. Um, it, it's the same thing. Same in the US. Are there new models? Well, yeah. yeah. Which, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. Um, I'll just explain why it's, it's difficult for, for the audience. And it, 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 what happens in the, the way that companies get structured financially is you might spin out from universities. Great idea, needs two or three million pounds to take it to, as a proof of concept in, a, in an animal model, for example. Um, that takes two or three million pounds. Then the company goes out and raises, uh, let's say, 20 to take that molecule into, into a phase one clinical trial. Um, what happens is that the first guys put in three million. Then, the sec then typically you get new investors come in and they put in their 20 million. And then all of a sudden you find, oh, actually, that molecule's not working very well. We need to do a backup, and that's going to need another 50. Um, so then all of a sudden, talk about weight of capital. That company's now got 
75 million pounds worth of, of money in it. And typically what happens at each stage, the, the, the VC coming in will say, oh, we need a return on that. We need a return on that. So the guys who put in 50 million might say, before any of you lot get any money back, we want to have one and a half times our money back. So all of a sudden you get these multiples. So what happens is the guy at the bottom all of a sudden doesn't make any money until that company's been sold for what, not more than £100 million, pounds, which, which suddenly starts to look really difficult uh, to achieve. And uh, by the way, the entrepreneurs are, are even below that. So unless you've got a fund which is huge and can really participate, it's very, very difficult to, to make money by investing in the early stages of drug discovery. The fund that, that I've been involved with, uh, you know, we've been able to, to invest up to $10 million in any one business. That's a drop in the ocean. So actually we took a strategic view about five years ago that we weren't going to do it. And, and by the way, just to put that into context, before we, we made that decision, we'd been a founder investor in Peptide Therapeutics, which is a canvas, Oxford Biomedica, um, Senes, Core, some of these were, some of them didn't. But the fact is we were an active investor in, in that market. Um, but we, we decided not to do it. I don't think you have anything to add there. So the only thing I would add is, if anything, the costs keep going up. Yeah. So, so the issue gets worse with time, not, not less. The regulators are getting tougher and tougher. Um, the hurdles you know, to actually get a product to market are much higher than they were 10 years ago. Okay, your question was um, around uh, what's the drivers, what's the reason for moving, um, moving away from... Internally, internally to, to external. externally, yeah. and is it, from a cynical perspective, about share price and the fact that they don't want risky R&D to affect it's actually not at all to do with that. What, it, what it's to do with, and, and we're, we're not the only big farmer that's externalizing drug discovery. Most, most big farmer are doing it. The primary driver is the, the, the reimbursement issue. So the primary driver is that the payers of medicines are demanding that we deliver truly differentiated medicines that are valued by the patients and obviously by the payers. They are, and, and quite rightly, the, the era of the Me Too is dead. They don't want us spending our investment, our research money in another Me Too, another incremental advantage. They want us to deliver medicines that really bring a benefit to the patient that they are prepared to pay for. So that's actually the primary driver. So if you take that premise that what we have to do is produce a truly differentiated medicine, different to what, el what anything else is out there, or, or to fulfill an unmet need, where there's a, a, a disease where there's no treatment, for example, you have to be innovative. If you're going to be innovative in your drug discovery, you have to be innovative all the way through, right at the beginning. In, that innovation is much more risky than drug discovery in the past. So it, it, it's, it's the requirement. It's, it's, it's not actually to do... It, well, there's obviously there's all the hurdles of, of, of the regulatory authorities, but that's actually not the primary driver anymore. It's persuading the payers to pay for the medicine that's actually the biggest challenge that we face going forward. And as I said, to, 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 to produce that differentiated medicine, you have to be innovative in your early stage drug discovery, and that means being more risky. We, we can't bear, Big Pharma can't bear all the burden of carrying out high-risk drug discovery. We have to partner. And the way we're choosing to partner at the moment is with the biotech industry, but with all of the issues. So it's exactly the same issue as to why the VCs are getting out, because it's very risky. But that's actually the reason that, that, that we want to get in, because you have to be 
you have to go for the more risky technologies to be able to generate a truly novel medicine. So that's so, you know, on the ground, you know, when you're presenting to your investment committee, uh, you have to convince these guys actually we want to invest in this project where it's going to take, we know it's going to take 50, 100 million dollars. We've only got 10 to play. Uh, it's a very innovative, exciting new oncology target, but they just sit, you know, say, well, so sorry. You know, it doesn't make financial sense. So it's, you know, you've got both these drivers working in exactly the wrong direction. That's right. Yeah. Would you could you just um, restate your question for um, the? It was really about the fact that you said that um, maybe Western taxpayers or Western public projects <coughs> are depleting, and so there's less and less money to invest in developing mm. country healthcare innovation. And I wonder whether you could look at the revenues that are being generated by the source-rich economies who happen to be developing countries from maybe oil and so on and so forth, mm. whether that could be reoriented mm. or oriented to the um, There's a, what's called the resource curse, I think, in the development world, which tends to mean if you look at the countries that are very natural resource rich, most of them have got very poor development indicators, and there's various reasons why people think that's the case. Paul Collier from Oxford here writes quite convincingly about the resource curse. I think of all the countries, actually the UK hasn't done particularly well with North Sea oil either, we've squandered it. I think the only, the only um, country that is held up as a, a model for you better using resource, uh, sort of uh, natural resource funds is, is Norway, uh, for example, but there aren't many Norways in the world. There are some countries that are beginning to look at this. Nigeria has had a bill sitting on the president's desk for some time now that's meant to top slice a small amount of Nigerian oil money, and Nigeria is the largest oil producer in in Africa to directly support some federal uh, health care spending. But it's got embroiled in, in politics it's, uh, and it's at the moment not going anywhere. So, but it may go somewhere in the future, but quite how that money gets channeled and where it goes and, and how um, stable that commitment will be over time is something to be seen. Ghana will be another interesting country. Um, oil money is coming. Ghana's pretty stable. Um, whether they might learn some of the lessons that we've seen from other countries that have had resources that uh, they haven't used effectively, whether Ghana will be able to channel things more effectively will be, I think, a, a, something a lot of people will be very interested in. Um, so there's no ar easy answer to that question, but certainly just having you know, the, the, the resources from raw materials hasn't necessarily led to benefits in the past. Just, I'd quickly just like to mention on this issue about you know, that you've been touching on, now, I think some of the questions that you're now facing around the cost of coming to market, how you value uh, products, you know, the impact of health technology assessments on public, you know, the willingness of public sector to pay. Actually, I think these are all things that we've been looking at from the developing country perspective. Um, you know, we've been working, for example, with NICE uh, in, in Ghana uh, and in China. Um, so I think we're actually all beginning to circle around the same problems. Um, and it's interesting that the discussion, the questions have been kind of divided in public sector, private sector. But actually, yeah. we are circling yeah. around the same yeah. problems. Yeah. And the question of valuation of, of innovation, I think, is a key one. You know, the risk profile along various 
and the, and the valuation of risk along uh, the development pipeline is something that we deal with. And you know, actually, we're not very good at dealing with in government. We're, you know, we're rather cautious about taking on risk. But actually, I think there is going to need to be shared risk along the pipeline. But also, if there's shared risk, there needs to be more moderate returns along the pipeline. So, you know, we have to, we're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle, you know, in the middle, the, the five and ten time multiple that VCs are going to ask for. You know, that's probably not going to be sustainable for very much longer if we're going to see any kind of private investment in healthcare yeah. development. Okay. One at the back. Right at the back. Keep going. Oh, yeah, right, right at the back, Thank you. Can I go back to the last discussion? I mean, I, I totally understand why VCs would not want to fund therapeutic projects. I also totally understand why people like Sheila would uh, invest in sort of platform technologies that are applicable to many disease areas and potentially bring back into pharma assets that have been de-risked. But we heard from John Bell this morning that for many chronic diseases, our understanding of disease is frankly pretty abysmal. And that's why the early stage of discovery is so incredibly high risk. So if pharma are not going to do that very early high risk stuff, VCs are not going to do it. How are we going to fill that void? So, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about from a VC perspective is uh, the way we structure our funds and the way that we have to invest in companies, I think, is pretty inefficient from a sort of capital perspective. So, I, for example, I've, I've did some work. Um, just to look at how much capital uh, has been invested in, in VC-backed companies uh, doing therapeutic work, uh, and what's that returned, uh, just in terms of numbers of compounds. And if, if you do that, I looked at 40, com 40 companies um, based in the US and Europe, and on, on average, those companies would have raised $60 million over four rounds of investment, so you start getting this what's called the preference stack. So there's consultation. You've uh, got uh, 40 lots of buildings. You've got 40 CEOs, 40 CFOs. You've got 40 remuneration committees. Da, 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 da. Um, in total, that's cost you um, a billion, whatever, 60 times 40, 40 is. Two and a bit billion. What you get in return for that is one compound per company in a phase two clinical trial which is hugely, hugely risky, uh, very, very inefficient. So what I've been looking at is, is, is there a different way, actually a different way of investing in, in high-risk therapeutics so that you actually you acknowledge, that you acknowledge the risk? Uh, you know there's going to be attrition in, in, um, in pharmaceutical drug discovery. Maybe a better way of doing it is to, is to invest more in compounds than in companies. Maybe... You can look at having having funds which are designed to uh, just invest in a virtual way, because I think there's a lot of resources out there now to, to be able to do uh, contract toxicology, pharmacology, uh, imaging, and, and the way that certainly oncology, the way that um, people are looking at clinical studies, to use things called phase zero trials, where instead of 
going into a phase one and getting to a maximum tolerated dose, you might, you might uh, go into a very small number of patients with very, very low doses of a compound to start seeing, is it hitting the right target? So I think there are ways of investing in compounds. So if you invest in a compound, you take away all this massive infrastructure cost that's been associated with, with all these companies. So I, I, think it, I think it's partly about capital efficiency, doing things in a more targeted fashion rather than saying, as it used to be the fashion in Cambridge, start the company, put in 20 chemists, and off you go. And actually, most times, that doesn't work. I think what you're suggesting is a great idea if you already have a, tar a drug target that you want to prosecute, you have a certain amount of data around it, and, and progress that program as a virtual company. I think, I think that's doable, and, and uh, investment firms are actually um, creating those sorts of virtual companies. But, but coming back to Chaz's point, I think that doesn't address the funding of the, of the early-stage platforms or the early-stage discovery to find those targets in the first place. That, I think, is still an issue, and I, I don't have an answer to this at the moment. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is trying to invest more, and I think it comes back to what I was saying very early on, is, is how do we try and invest or, or, or certainly put some resources into academic groups, academia, where a lot of that research is taking place? How can we maximize that investment? I don't have the answer, but I think we're going to have to do something like that, because otherwise, where are the new medicines coming from? But isn't that exactly where we need the public sector? I mean, <coughs> we're coming back to yeah. a, a, you know, yeah. the, the basic market issue. If, if the, there's two elements. One is risk and one is ex expected return. If, if you cannot appropriate the value of what, what you create, then you're not going to invest in it. So you, know, you get back, right back to the in interface within, within developed countries around uh, what, what, what does the public science base do and what, what, what can the commercial sector do and how can they work together and on what basis. And in neglected diseases, you get into partly the push-pull. At what, you know, what point can the commercial sector take be in the driving seat with appropriate incentives? And to what extent do you need to be pushing um, um, the, science, um, the science funding base? I mean, I, like Sheila, I absolutely believe that the biggest challenge we face in drug discovery this is with coming up with novel medicines, which is what Sheila wants to do, is uh, target validation, is being able to say that this novel target is going to work in this stratified patient subset. I think that's the biggest challenge that we have. Something that we've not touched on, um, but I think we all recognize that the way we're currently doing drug discovery, there is massive duplication in the early phase. Most companies, because they're working on the same diseases, are working on the same targets, they progress their proprietary molecules in parallel, in secret, up to phase two, and 90 plus percent will fail at phase two. So I think somehow if we accept that the global biomedical pot isn't going to increase, somehow we need to reduce that duplication before phase two. Yeah. Right, but I mean, let's, yeah. let's explore that. So what in practice are we talking about? One option is that one pharmaceutical company takes over all the others, so, so it then becomes an internal decision, but they'll still have issues internally. Or are we talking about ways in which 
companies should be working together, albeit under the aegis of, of, of public organisations or whatever. I mean, or, is it, or a joint venture. Yeah. So, right. what exactly? I mean, what, what are the? What is the market failure, and what are the mechanisms that we have? And is, is competition law a problem here? So, are, you know, what are the practical issues that will take that forward? Sorry, yeah, um, we'll, we'll pick that up. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, I think there's a very interesting parallel um, in, in terms of this market failure between the market um, between this one and the market failure you see in um, clean tech investment and large-scale infrastructure. And that's, a, I think, a very good example of where government intervention has had a, a good ex has pulled through um, uneconomic technologies. Um, for example, the intervention by um, Department of Energy and Climate Change and creating the carbon trust and the pulling through of all of the offshore wind and the wave activity. And I just wonder what the panel thinks about the possibility of government intervention in that fashion to set up an organization akin to the carbon trust but operating in this space. I don't think I know <laughs> enough about how the carbon trust works no. to answer that. Um, well, if we sort of ignore the fact that it's come, just what about some kind of um, government body intervening to provide either early stage venture that has strategic objectives or sort of seeding um, non-economic technologies that can come through to a stage where they would be economic? And arguably, that's what we do on a very small scale with product development partnerships now with the 60 million which is a very small amount of money in drug development terms but arguably that's what we try to do is work with organizations that have identified products that aren't deemed to be commercially viable and try to push them along until you know you change the um, the risk of that, that product so it, then it does become commercially viable in a kind of a high volume type market at a low margin once you get it out to, to market so and one of the other interesting things about the product development model is supposedly, um, and this is, and Gates has been, been pushing this in some of the fund work that it's funded, there's meant to be more sharing across the partners um, that are working on this. So some of the duplication that you were talking about supposedly can be avoided. Um, I don't think that's been fully worked through, particularly actually across the product development partnerships. But, but there are some, you know, in us having to drive this um, in these areas where there hasn't been commercial interest, probably will begin to develop some interesting ways of working that then might be transferable back into um, probably, probably still with some public sector inputs into other more commercial fields, I suspect, over time. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say this idea of open innovation that, that's come to the fore in the last few years, I think, is, is a good one, which speaks to this. Is it, is, it is companies and, and academia and, and governments sharing information and working together. Um, there's clearly, in Big Pharma, as, as you said, Chaz, that there is a, there's, a, there's a mindset, I think, that has to change to allow that to happen. But I think that is starting to change. I think people are realizing that we can't, each company can't go it alone, that that duplication of, of effort is, is counterproductive. It really isn't efficient. Um, and, for example, GSK and Pfizer have just set up a, a joint venture to work on, on antivirals, HIV, which I think is a good sign. We're sharing IP, we're sharing resources. And I think if we can do more of that, we've, we've done something similar with uh, diseases for the, for the developing world. We've, got a, a, we've set a, we're setting up a lab in, in Spain 
where we're inviting academic groups, anybody who's working in malaria and other diseases of the developing world, to work together in the same lab. So I think we're, we're start, the, the philosophy is starting to change, and I think it's, it's going to have to go that way. Um, yeah, as you said, to avoid that duplication, we, we just can't afford, society can't afford that anymore. But, but the challenge is, can, we, should, can and should we do that in diabetes and one or two other sort of yeah. mainstream chronic yes. diseases? Yes, and, that, yes. and it yeah. comes back to this, pre, is there a pre-competitive format yes. that would enable that to happen, like the SNP consortium and one yes. or two others that have been there? And is there, is there some mechanism by which that can be created? And I think trialling it in perhaps the less contentious disease areas, like disease of the developing world or, or, or HIV, is, is a good way to go to, to at least establish the concepts and establish the principles. And hopefully that will lead on to more collaboration and open innovation in, in the bigger disease areas. So I, I think what we're touching on in the end is some form of collaboration between the private and public sectors, and I, I don't think any of us has an answer on you know, the appropriate structure. Um, the comment I would, I would make is that, you know, we're talking about medical, medical innovation here, and it seems to me that there's an assumption that medical innovation is technological in nature, um, and what we're talking about, I think, fundamentally is saving lives. So when you look at the, the picture, I think, for pharmaceuticals in the next 50 years, the entire growth is going to come out of emerging markets. And the problem is that emerging markets can't bear the costs of the products that we produce. So we have a business model built on sustaining very high pharmaceutical company margins, <coughs> which is effectively directly antithetical to delivering healthcare in the developing world, where the growth is going to be. So something needs to change, and I, I unfortunately don't have a good answer. <laughs> but I, I think a lot of it really has to do with lowering costs. And I think a lot of times we need to step back and, and realize that we probably really have already over-engineered a lot of the solutions that can be applied to problems that are very large but simply unaddressed. And, and that the solutions may be lowering the cost to the point where you can actually deliver the drug and working out how to get to that. And we don't spend a lot of time doing that. Hi, uh, my name is Václav. I study medical imaging here at Oxford. Uh, my comment ties into the previous point about investing in assets and targets rather than investing in companies. When you look at financial innovation in the past 20 years, and in particular as seen by investment banks and the securitization of assets, uh, we've seen some spectacular failures, and a major reason for the failures in the past 20 years was the assumption of a lack of correlation between the risk outcome of the assets in the pool. And it would, whereas the assets were actually correlated, uh, which uh, the creators didn't assume. And it would seem to me to make much more sense that uh, this independence exists in a thing like a clinical trial or a exploration of a drug target. And I was wondering, uh, has the city or uh, financial services sector proposed anything like, say, pooling a thousand uh, targets or thousand clinical trials and selling it on to uh, pension funds in order to, instead of creating a bubble in South Florida, you could create a bubble in drug discovery and actually produce something useful. <laughs> I, I can say something. That people have tried to securitize um, you know, drug discovery in some form. Um, it's very, very difficult to do because when you securitize an asset, it's based on predictable cash flows. So you can securitize a portfolio of student loans, but when you go look at 1,000 clinical trials, the outcomes are so stochastic you basically can't come up with a value that's within any kind of reasonable um, estimate. You just can't value it. 
where people have done it is typically where you've got compounds that are on the market or very close to the market where you right. can look at cash right. flows. And there are That's three, right. three or four companies around the world that, that, that look at that royalty, royalty funds, they're called. But um, interesting to look on a bigger scale if you had a bigger sort of pot of clinical studies, we may be able to model that. I guess if you had enough, right? Yeah. You might be able to. Yeah, but 10,000, right? And the, uh, actually, the, uh, I think the productivity increases. I mean, you have some long term statistics about it. Yeah. If you apply standard attrition rates or whatever, you might be able to do it. I mean, I suspect when you go look at the 1,000, there'll be a lot of very different things in that 1,000. So if it was 1,000 diabetes trials, I agree with you. But if you start comparing HIV to diabetes to medical devices to everything else, which is sort of to get to that 1,000 number, mm-hmm. um, I, I just don't think you're going to be able to get to statistical power. Yeah, it's also difficult. It is actually pretty difficult to invest in assets themselves because you always, that fund, if you had a fund, it would be investing in the company that had the asset. Mm. So, you know, your value would not be driven purely on the back of the, the result of one clinical trial, but on the back of, you know, all the things that company's doing. So That's right. That's an issue. And then just to add one final wrinkle, a lot of times the thing you invest in ends up failing and it's the third drug in the yes. pipeline that's the one that creates yes. all the value. Yes. If the investors put up enough money to the third one. And stay in long enough. <laughs> Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. Yes, I'm uh, from GE and Imperial College. Work on both sides. But I think we've always been talking about treatment, but not about prevention. And how do you invest in prevention? Because there's no, people don't see money to be made from it, so they don't invest in it. But that's a much better way um, to solve the problem. Because most of the problems are due to poor sanitation, uh, lack of access to doctors, whatever. Uh, and we're actually introducing... Western lifestyles to people who are eventually going to introduce cars, televisions, whatever, people who get less mobile will have more chronic disease. Uh, we don't limit smoking there or anything, you know, all these things. So we should be investing, chronic disease would be the big problem. Uh, eventually infectious diseases, if we can get the sanitation, all this right. Now, people don't get access, they can't even have a road to get to the doctor. They can't, pregnant women in India have to walk miles just to see and have a visit. So development of systems in these countries, first of all, to develop their own biotech industry to help them to be there. Why, why do we have to export all this stuff? Why, like, like in India and China, they're doing it. But even in the China, are two different countries. Each one has two countries, the rural and the urban. Mm-hmm. And so you get medicine in India, is probably very good in the cities, but if you go outside, there's none. So it, 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 there are two countries. And if we don't invest in, in infrastructure, uh, at GE, for example, in Ghana, we put in $20 million of equipment, medical, uh, sanitation, water, and energy. But not only that, we have people who work in our company who volunteer to go there to teach and to start up and to uh, train people how to manage. So you can't just send things out. If you send drugs to a country, where are the drugs going to go? To probably the richer people in the country... Uh, uh, there a lot of, uh, we don't talk about corruption, but there, that is a word no one's mentioned yet. Where, what happens to things when they go there? You know, we have difficulty enough to know where the drug goes when we give it to somebody in the mouth. Where does it go in the body? So this is more difficult. Where does it go in, in the country and who, de- who gets it? So we're working a lot on reverse innovation. Uh, India has developed an, a battery ECG with wireless, so you can work, use it anywhere. But now it's becoming just as important in, in developed countries because you want to be able to use an ECG everywhere as well. People have heart attacks in the middle of the road or want to, you know, and things like that. So low-priced CTs are being developed now in China. 
or x-ray in India. So they are now exporting things which you don't need all the bells and whistles many times that we have in the Western world. These things were the investment. I think we've got to look now not in infectious diseases because we have treatments for many of them, but the chronic disease management, diabetes, heart failure, all these things are going to come. And China has the highest aging population in the world. 20% of all the people over 60 are in China. So they're going to have the Alzheimer's problems. Our bankruptcy will not come from infectious diseases. That's the cheap solution. The expensive solution are the long-term neurological diseases. And that's where all the costs go. It's very cheap for someone to get a disease and die in a year or a few weeks. It's very expensive for someone who's living now to 70, 80, 90 with Alzheimer's for 30 years or 20 years, whatever. And, and all the um, mental illnesses, which we've lost now. But knowing that influenza seems to cause, in pregnancy, causes schizophrenia in later life for the child when it's born... These things are being discovered now. Why don't we have uh, vaccines better which prevent long-term neurological diseases? We, we don't look at the whole effect. You have neurologists looking at one thing later in life, or, but we don't look at the neonatology or the people uh, looking at people, uh, pregnancy. What can we do to stop genetic changes during pregnancy? These sort of things, how we tie things together, uh, are very important. We're always in silos. So we have a silo to supply medical equipment. We don't have a silo to make sure it can be running, that there is electricity, that there's good water, that there are fridges even to keep things. I, I work on a project on TB discovery or the treatment, uh, the, the detection, in, in, which was originally in Zimbabwe, uh, to move it out to malaria because of safety reasons. But every few minutes, the electricity supply went down. So how can you keep the sputum samples? How can you do anything? if there's no infrastructure. So we have to solve the infrastructure problem way before we start thinking about doing anything else. And that's, that's a major issue. But you've got to have a reward for that. And venture capital is not going to invest in building a road. Might get a better return. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> More certainly it's going to work anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, good. I think we've got time. I'd like to thank the panel very much for their contribution. Thank you to the audience. Um, it's been a very good conversation. I've got a couple of housekeeping points here. Um, it's going to be, lunch is now going to be served until 2.30 in the foyer. Um, then there'll be a question time plenary session at the main auditorium. Um, there is a question box in the foyer, uh, so if you have questions which you want to put to the panel there, please put them in and they'll try and uh, answer as many as possible. So, I'd like to give my appreciation to the, to the panellists.